The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. <laughs> Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish, Pas- Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning, we've got a special guest. If you've been around the Gallery Church for a while, um, you've uh, seen my friend um, Leon Pinkett share here before, but uh, he's going to be sharing with us again this weekend. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is like, we've, we've set this weekend aside as a national holiday to remember the legacy and the life of Dr. King and how um, his message and his perseverance, long-suffering endurance, really paved the way for us to be multi-ethnic in this room here today in America. You know, just thinking 40, 50 years ago or better, there was a strong possibility that we wouldn't be gathering in Baltimore with this much diversity in this space if it wasn't for somebody like Dr. King and many others that stood along with him, even Elijah Cummings, who we've been um, celebrating uh, his life and his impact. There's been so much that's happened that I think we can't just get over and be like, okay, we're now in a new norm. Um, There's so much work that we still have to be done. And my friend Leon is not only a pastor here in the city, he also is a a councilman over the 7th District here in Baltimore. But I'm excited to have him come and teach this passage with us today. And so would you guys do me a favor and welcome one of my closest friends, Leon, up to teach with us today. Thank you, bro. Thank you, man. You're always looking good. One of these days I'm going to give him a shout without a suit on, though. Yeah, good luck. Good morning, gallery. 
I thought um, Pastor Ellis was giving me a promotion when he was about to call me congressman. That's <laughs> why so I said, I'll take it. Um, this is, I'm always blessed to, to come to gallery. Um, for me, it is a, a home away from home. Um, I actually thought my, my pastor was going to be here today to make sure I was here. Um, I've been to gallery a couple of times now. I think he's going to come and, and, and check it out to make sure <laughs> that I do come back. Um, but uh, gallery has always been such a blessing to me and my family. And Pastor Ellis is uh, one of my dearest friends. Um, I, um, we had a conversation, and I can honestly admit uh, that um, other than my, my birth brothers, I don't have many brothers. Um, I value the title brother. It means a lot. And so um, I appreciate being able to call Pastor Ellis my brother, so thank you. Um, if I can, um, I've got my notes, so don't worry. Um, but I just want to be obedient, um, if, if I could, for, for a moment. Um, I just sense, I just have a sense of urgency. Um, and I don't think we, if, if, if the Holy Ghost in you is working at all, I, I don't think you have to be, your arm doesn't have to be twisted, um, you don't have to be convinced um, that there has to be a sense of urgency. Um, there has to be a sense of urgency about everything that we do in the name of Christ. Um, there's got to be an urgency. And, and, and I, I, I really don't have anything in my, my notes um, related to um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but um, I guess I do because he practiced a sense of urgency um, that the affairs during the time when he was advocating couldn't wait for tomorrow. They had to be acted and responded to in that day. Um, and that there was a sense of long-suffering, a sense of patience, a sense of um, no matter how long it takes, um, it will not be too long for me to push and to strive and to advocate and to raise my voice. And when we look at even our city, sometimes I wonder where is the sense of urgency? I'm, 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 I'm told you, I'm, I'm just going to be obedient for now. I, I got to be transparent. I mean, when you think about a city that just came out of 348 homicides in 2019, and that, although that was the most that we've seen in this city, um, we've gone into a period where year after year there's over 300 homicides. And, and if you would open your ears, you could barely hear an outcry about the deaths, the violence, that the enemy that's ravaging our city. Um, if 300 people died in a plane crash, the uh, United Way would be there, the Red Cross would be there. We, we would have everyone around saying, what, you know, what can we do? How can I lean in? How can I help? There would be prayer vigils all over the world. But 348 die in Baltimore, and we turn the page as if it's just another chapter. Um, if one person, if that right one person died in a car accident, uh, there would be vigils throughout the world. Um, people would be burning candles. People would be mourning and, and whatnot. If that one person, but here we, we're in a city where 300 people die on a regular, and you could barely hear an outcry. And, and that might be okay 
if I didn't hear an outcry from certain sections of the city, but, but there's got to be an outcry from us, right? I mean, because why would Christ leave us here? Why would God leave us here if, if we wouldn't be the voice that he needs to cry out, to cry out, to cry out? And the shame of the matter is, I, I, I don't know, God has blessed me over the past few weeks, past months actually, to be a part of a group that's going out into the community and we're hitting the corners and we're going, trying to find you know, those young men who might find themselves in harm's way, that might find themselves committing acts of violence. And the, the amazing thing about going out that I'm finding is that here I'm going out to be a blessing to somebody else and I find out that I'm getting blessed more than they are. I didn't realize how many young men had never heard another male tell them I love you. I mean, I grew up in a household where my father told me I, that he loved me on a regular. I, matter of fact, I tell my son that I love him every day. And so I just couldn't imagine a young man in his late teens, early 20s, where the tear that was tattooed on his eye has now been replaced by a real tear because brothers have come by and say, I love you, you're a prince, you're a king, you're better than that, you can do better than that, how can I help you? Didn't imagine what it would feel like to have a young lady as she's walking down the sidewalk and 50 men who are coming out to do outreach part the way and say, our sister walked through, you're a queen, and see her brighten up because she knows she's safe on the street that night. And the fact is, when we go out, it's Christians, it's Muslims, it's people who of all a variety of faith. As a matter of fact, a Muslim brother told us, he said, I want to thank you, say thank you to my Christian brothers, because we've been out on these streets for years, and we can't do it without you. Where's the outcry? Where's, where's the cry? Where's the sense of urgency that... If we aren't God's hands, if we aren't God's feet, if we aren't his presence in the earth, who are we expecting to do it? And so today, um, even in my coming, if my coming today is just about sharing information, um, as much as I love my brother, he could have invited somebody else. Because it today has to be more than just me giving you the facts of this scripture. It has to be. It, ha it has to be. If, if there's something or if there's nothing in our gathering that at the end of the day doesn't motivate you or motivate us, if, it, if we don't leave this space, if we don't, when we come together, if we don't leave that space and then are inspired to move, then our coming was in vain. If, if, if in our coming, if the Christ is in us and it gathers from heart to heart, breast to breast, and we are gathered together and nothing happens to challenge me, nothing challenges me to apply the truths that I'm hearing, then, then why am I here? If nothing happens, if I don't get pushed, if I'm not provoked to respond 
in a way maybe that I've never responded before, then I would have to say my coming was in vain. You know, if I was a doctor and I wrote a prescription, I could have the most beautiful penmanship and I could give you that prescription. But there's nothing in that prescription in and of itself that's going to heal you. If you don't take what is being prescribed and then apply it, there's no mystery, there's no healing in that prescription. It is the application of what we're learning. It's the application of the truths that we're discussing. It is, it is what we're learning that's going to make the difference. And if I don't apply it, and as we even get into this, um, this account in John, if, if I don't apply it, am I not anticipating that there will be one day there will be somebody who comes up to me starving and hungry and looking for a meal, and because I didn't apply these truths, I have nothing to give them. And they're going to eat, but are they going to eat that meal that God would have wanted them to eat? Are they going to eat something that's righteous? Are they going to eat something that's wholesome? Are they going to eat something that comes from the Word of God? Am I going to be, for them, that bread of life? And so, in this sixth chapter of John, it marks for us something unique, unique to the Gospels, that only occurs once in the four accounts. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded by all four Gospel writers. It's amazing when you think about it. not walking on the water, not Lazarus, not all of the healings, not the, you know, um, healing the blind, the lame, or possessed. Um, this. This is the one that's in all four. I don't know what I don't I don't know what allowed for this to rise up above all those other wonderful things that Jesus did throughout the, the gospels. But this was the one that everybody agreed to record. The feeding of the five thousand. And I totally get the fact that John declared in chapters 20 and 21, that he says, look, Jesus did so much stuff that we witnessed that there aren't even enough volumes, there are not even enough books to record all the works that Jesus did. But out of all of that that we, they had to choose from, they all agreed on the significance of this feeding of the 5,000. But the fact is, the fact that this is the only one is enough to warrant us to take a, deep, a deeper look at this particular miracle. While the fact that this miracle is shared between all of the Gospels ties these accounts together in a way unlike any of Jesus' other miracles, the unique emphasis that John places on particular details makes his record distinct from those of his colleagues. John, John has a, a, a different perspective on this than, than even some of the other apostles. In the reading of the accounts, it's clear that John has a different viewpoint, a, a, a different emphasis than the other three. His focus is not the same. What he deems important is not consistent with what the others have prioritized. I mean, this should not be strange to us, especially when we consider how John even introduces us, his readers, to Jesus Christ. I mean, in one and one, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I mean, 
Like, how do you start off a book that way? I mean, John just jumps right in with this deep theological thought, this doctrine. Um, he, he, he's like flexing his relationship with, God, with Jesus. It's like, yeah, I told you I was the one that he loved. <laughs> this is what we talked about when I was leaning on him. I mean, he doesn't start with a genealogy. You know, every good hero has an origin story. He doesn't give an origin story. I mean, he... he he, he makes this pronouncement of who Jesus is. John is the kind of student that messes up the curve. It's like, man, we thought we were going to get extra points, but here, here John go again, showing off with more insight than anybody else has. He's not concerned with simple chronology of events. He doesn't just want to confirm what others have borne witness to. He wants to provide a deeper understanding and greater insights on, on items that might not have been understood previously. And to aid in that regard, John had the benefit of penning his gospel possibly some 30 or 40 years after the other disciples. So he, he kind of had a little help. He had a chance to read maybe what some other people had wrote and say, okay, well, I don't have to cover that. You seem like y'all got that pretty much covered, but you may have missed some of these points. You might have missed this perspective on who Jesus is. So John wants us to leave his writing thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. I found myself over these past couple weeks really reflecting on who is Jesus to me? I mean, if I asked everyone to raise their hands in this place and said, do you love Jesus? And I think most probably in this, in this space would say, I love. But when you think about Jesus, what, what do you think? What, what do you think of him? You know, how do you feel about your relationship with him? How do you think he thinks of you? I think John wanted us to get a perspective on who, who do we really see when we see Jesus? If I was to be honest, I had to change my perspective of Jesus. I had to change. I know I believe that Jesus loves me, but through, in my faith, do I really act like he really loves me? I know I say that he provides and he cares for me, but if I would be honest, in the way that I pray to him, that prayer doesn't sound like I'm praying to somebody who really wants to give me his blessings and give me the benefits that he has. I sound more like I'm begging Jesus to do something. I, say, I sound more like I'm praying to somebody who doesn't know me and I don't know them, that I'm not a friend with him, that I'm not in relationship with him. I had to ask myself, what, what do I believe? What do I see when I see Jesus? Because if I was a sinner, oh gosh, the question could be asked, do you believe? And, and it would be easy to get the answer. But when you ask a believer... Do you believe in Jesus? What is the response? Because if I asked you, can God trust, can you trust God with your money? Would you say yes? <laughs> if I asked you, if, can God trust you, can you trust God with your time? Would you say yes? How about your career? How about your family? How about your destiny and your future? 
Because all of that shows who we think God is and the relationship that we have with him. But because of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, especially healing people of a variety of infirmities, a large crowd continued to follow him and his disciples. In an effort to escape from them so that they might get some rest and relaxation, they departed for the other side of the Sea of Tiberias and ascended a small hill. And it's at this point, right from the onset, that John distinguishes himself and his account from that of his co-disciples. Because the verse 4 says, And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. There's nowhere that ascribes this revelation to a statement that Jesus made. This is not a description of what John physically heard or saw. This is an observation that John made and deemed relevant to all the other activities that transpired during this occasion. John believed that this bit of information is so critical that it requires him being more than just a recorder of the events, but an actual commentator. John literally steps in, and he's not just recording what he saw and what he heard. Now he's commenting, and he's giving some analysis. He's giving play-by-play. And as we most, many of us know, the Passover is a feast instituted by God to commemorate the deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and the sparing of their firstborn when the death angel killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. This precipitated Israel's deliverance from Egypt and was regarded as the starting point of the Hebrew nation. Therefore, the Passover became an annual celebration of God's grace, of his mercy, of his faithfulness, a reminder of his provision for them that included even manna or that bread from heaven. By infusing his opinion into the conversation, John is letting us know that from his perspective, there is a direct connection between the miracle that we're about to learn about and the Passover, that we might want to pay special attention to this moment or miss the true meaning and lesson we are supposed to learn. But despite their efforts to escape for a little rest and relaxation, to recuperate from their individual ministry missions, a large crowd continues to follow after Jesus and his disciples. The multitude saw what he had done for the sick in this region, and they were desirous of that same type of healing that he offered. And Jesus, with compassion, he observes this approaching crowd and as they draw closer to them. And just their presence provokes Jesus to action. And as I reviewed these verses over and over, I had to ask myself, where would we be if not for John's account? John's description of the events of this miracle, taking nothing away from those of the other three witnesses, but their testimonies left unchecked by John could leave us with some deficiencies or some gaps in our concept of what ministry really looks like. By John's account, Jesus perceives that they will have to make provisions for the crowd that is gathered to hear him teach and to receive their healing. He invites the disciples to participate in this facilitation of his serving. That's what John states. But the other three disciples paint a different picture. According to their gospels, they were the ones who initiated the conversation. Jesus had just finished teaching and healing, and the hour was long spent, and everyone, the evening was approaching. And according to the other three accounts, the disciples feeling as though they were showing compassion for the followers, 
They were the ones who recommended to Jesus, hey, Jesus, maybe we should just let everybody go now. It's getting dark. It's getting late. How did they? One side says, well, we did this. And John is saying, no, Jesus made the invitation. Are we only responsible for what we deem to be the spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters? And any natural necessities should be addressed through some other source? Or are we responsible for our whole brother, spiritual and natural, and trust God to help us to address all of those needs? In the other three accounts, Jesus instructs the disciples that there is no need to send the multitude away and that they should give them something to eat. The disciples, I would imagine, say to themselves, how on earth would they ever be able to accomplish that? They immediately start scrambling, trying to figure out how can they accommodate the needs of so many. They take an accounting of their money. I'm quite sure they like, how much you got? How much you got? <laughs> and what they perceive to be the cost to feed so many and find that, bro, I, don't, I got no money. I, I can't cover this one. They take an assessment of what supplies are available to them and, and also determine that they are inadequate. But John's gospel, John's account, once again shows the perspective of one who understands that this was never about a meal. This is bigger than that. This is more encompassing than that. This was about a promise, a covenant, a relationship with God who provided the sacrifice. We know that, and so in verses 5 and 6, as Jesus sees this company coming, he says to Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. We know that God doesn't tempt us to cause us to stumble. But God is not above proving us and allowing us to see where our faith really is. I think Jesus asked Philip specifically because of Philip's familiarity with the area. Philip knew these parts. This was his hood. There were probably many in the multitude that he may even have known. He knew that based upon where they were situated, even if they had more resources, there was no way that they could feed all of these people. Philip did what we do so often, and that is immediately turn to what we in our limited capacity can perform, what we can accomplish, what we can bring to pass. He made an assessment of the capacity of the people around him. He evaluated his environment, and he came to the conclusion that, Jesus, I can't do this. And when I thought about Philip, I thought about my own situation. I thought about, see, I don't just represent any particular district on the council. I represent a section of the city that most people have already given up on. Sections of West Baltimore where there have been decades of disinvestment and disinvestment and disinvestment. And I would imagine that oftentimes people do just like Philip did. They look around communities like Sandtown and Druid Heights and Penn North and say, God, 
I can't do this. And they look at the capacity of the people who live in those communities. And God says, why don't you feed them? God, I can't do this. But of course, in this Bible account, we're we're talking about a meal. But how often have we taken a look at our needs and compared them to our resources and come to the same conclusion as Philip? Jesus, this can't be done. I don't have enough. I can't borrow enough. Jesus, can you just make it go away? I don't have enough faith to believe that this situation can be turned around. I don't. I'm just praying that you send them away, that you send this situation away so that I don't have to face the fact that I don't know how to deal with this. It's during those moments that we do the same thing that Philip did. Philip was so intimidated by the enormity of the task that he totally missed the fact that Jesus included himself in the resolution of this dilemma. Check this out. Jesus never asked Philip, how was Philip going to feed the multitude? Jesus asked Philip, how are we? He didn't say, Philip, how are you going to do it? He said, how are we? Jesus has no intention on bringing us a dilemma only for the purpose of abandoning us. Maybe for a moment, Philip forgot who he was talking to. Maybe for a moment, he forgot who asked the question. Maybe for a moment, he forgot that Jesus is the one who desires that we cast our cares on him, not vice versa. Maybe it was too long ago for him to remember the healings and the miracles that he had just witnessed. When we find ourselves in a situation like Philip, I think it behooves all of us to take a page out of Ezekiel's playbook. Because in Ezekiel 37, verse 3 and 4, it says, And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? I think Ezekiel knew something. I think Ezekiel said, I'm not sure, but I don't want to mess this up. And while I might not be able to do it, I got a sneaky suspicion, God, that you have the ability to do it. And so he answered, oh, Lord God, you know. (laughs) From my vantage point, I don't see how this can be done, but I know enough about the God that I serve that with you all things are possible. Can you imagine if we took that position rather than the position that Philip took of God, there's too many murders in this city. We can't do it. There's too much poverty in this city. We can't do it. There's not enough support in this city. God, we can't do it. Instead, when God asks us to do those difficult things, when he asks us to stand out and be on the forefront, and he says, can these dry bones live? And our response is, thou knowest. And then he replies to us, then prophesy. Then he gives us the authority to then speak life into those dead situations. Verse 8 says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, there is a lad here which have five barley loaves, two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Andrew even tries to assist in this dilemma. He, he arrives, but he, just like Philip, arrives to the same place of hopelessness. 
That's why it was so important, the praise team singing to us this morning. Because hopelessness can be contagious. All it takes is one person to give up, to not walk in hope. It just prepares the way for the next person to come up and also walk in that same hopelessness. And so it's encouraging when we sing together about who God is and what he, what he can do. It stirs up hope in us and it stirs up hope in the entire body. And so Andrew comes and he picks up right where Philip left off. And, and so the most he feels like he can muster is this meager lunch, and, which is inadequate for one man, let alone 5,000. And if I could be completely honest, in this entire account, my favorite part is verse 10. I know it may seem strange, but there's something about when I read verse 10 and it says, and Jesus said, make the men sit down. And so I know that the Bible says, let me get back to that verse 10, but I want to hit this real quick and come back. And it says, I know that the Bible says that Jesus took the fish and the loaves and he blessed it and he dispersed it to the multitude and everyone had more than enough to eat. And there was so much left over that each of the disciples had a basket to themselves. Um, that, that is Pastor Ellis. Look how God just takes care of his, of his servants. Here these were men who had put their own need on the side so they could be used of God to serve others. And at the end of the day, God said, I got you. And it's amazing how God does that. When, When we give ourselves to him, when we give our resources to him, when we give our time, when we sacrifice for him, God doesn't forget us. When we think that we've, that last person has got the last meal and there's nothing left, God says, I already had your provision waiting for you. And so he he didn't have two baskets. He didn't have ten baskets, but he had one for each one of them. That's the kind of God we serve. He doesn't miss a detail. Mm. Hebrews 6 and 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love for which ye have showed toward his name, and that we have ministered to the saints and do minister. God doesn't forget our labor of love. He doesn't forget our ministry. But if I can, I want to I finish on verse 10. If I was to name this, and I didn't have a, a title for this, but it would have been, just sit down. <laughs> Last time I spoke, uh, 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 I spoke on uh, a title, The N-Word. So this was as quite as provocative as that. But I would just say, just sit down. There's a point in time where all of our knowledge, all of our creativity, all of our resources, our intellect, our networks, they just won't work. We've tried everything that we can. We've called everybody on our, in our, <laughs> that we can. We've reached out to everybody that we can. We've borrowed from everybody that we can borrow from. We've called help to everyone that we know. 
We even started calling our enemies now for help. And it's at that point where you expended all you can. You've used every resource you can. You've tried everything you can. Jesus is saying, why don't you just try me? Why don't you just trust me? You've tried everything. You said you were going to pray about this, and the truth be told, you didn't really pray. You did more worrying about it than you did praying about it. You said that you believed God, but the truth be told, you tried everything you could figure out, and none of it worked. And so Jesus says, now at that moment, now it's time for you to sit down. As I try to make an application of these passages and the faith that it's calling to, I can't help to ask, when will Baltimore sit down? Like, when when will Baltimore get to the place of trying everything that we can do, coming up with every strategy that we can come up with, go from elected, and while I am one, to elected, looking for answer after answer after answer. And Jesus is saying, Baltimore, just sit down. Because there's something in sitting down that says that I trust you. They didn't sit down to a a dining room table. They sat down to nothing. They sat down to a promise. They sat down with the expectation that Jesus is going to provide. Now, do I see the meal yet? No. They, they, all they knew, I can, can you imagine the rumbling that went around the 5,000? What do you mean sit down? I heard they only got five, they only got two fish and five loaves. What do you sit down for what? Trust us. Sit down. And that's where leadership, that's, that's where we are tested as ministers to convince to to share the faith that we have with others that will allow them to take on the same confidence and trust that we have and apply it to them their lives so that when they're anxious, when they're worried, they look to to a pastor, they look to a minister, they look to a brother in Christ and say, there's something in you that's giving you a sense of calmness when everybody should be upset right now. Just sit down. Sitting down is a sign of trust, a sign that while I have not yet seen the answer to the prayer from my position of being seated, I can see the one who's able to answer my prayer. I'll say it again. (laughs) It's a sign that while I haven't quite yet seen the answer to that thing that I've been praying for, that I'm believing God for, that I'm trusting him for, from this seated position, I've got a clear view to the one who can answer that prayer. Sitting down in God is not a sign of defeat. Rather, it's a sign of submitting to the one who already had in mind how he was going to work this thing out. He just didn't tell us. But you know what, God? I'm okay with it. You don't even have to tell me how you're going to work it all out. All I have to know is that you said that we 
are going to do this thing. And as long as you're in it, I know that all things are working to the good for me because they're working. So Philip, (laughs) Philip, Jesus just just waiting until the other Philip's in here. I I know, if if I'm going to be honest, I might as well raise my hand because I know there's times when I've been a Philip. I know it was a time last week I was a Philip. When I saw the need, I saw what was facing me. And I knew there was nothing in me that could answer that need. And I had to remind myself that I don't have to have the answer. I don't have to make the way. All I have to do is trust the way maker. And so what are we going to do? The next time Jesus comes to us and he shares with us something from his heart that he wants to see expressed in the, in the land. When he sees a need and he asks us, I, I need you to be the one to help me address that need. When he sees the concern and he asks, I need for you to be the voice to speak that, speak for me in that situation. Are we going to be like Philip and say, God, you know, I, I, I just can't do it, God. I, 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 I got something else to do. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough in me. I'm not confident enough. I don't have, can't you get, get Pastor Ellis? He can do it. He's equipped to do it. Are we going to just say, Jesus, I'm going to sit down and trust you to deliver us? Thank you.